0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 1st of May, 2023, and this is episode 298. On this week's Mentioned in Dispatches podcast, I talked to author and scholar, Dr. Michael Newtkevich, about his new book, A Ukrainian Chapter, A Jewish Aid Worker's Memoir of Sorrow. This is a translation of the memoir of Eli Goumena, a Jewish relief worker living through the consequences of the Great War and the Russian Civil War in Podolia, southwest Ukraine. In his memoir, Gunuma describes the effect of pogroms on Jewish communities, the challenges of providing relief, And the conflict between parties with various political agendas. Michael is an independent scholar and lives in New Mexico. He spoke to me from his office in Albuquerque. Michael, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the period of the Great War?
1: Well, thank you, Tom. It's uh, great to be on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I I do look forward to our conversation. I guess the the story behind my work starts with my parents who were Jewish-Polish refugees who came uh, to the United States um, via an arduous journey uh, that took them to the Soviet Union and then to Japan and Canada and finally to the United States in 1941, so i come from a family of um of jewish refugees uh and uh, that was already uh, you one can't help but be aware of the old country and the events of europe when you come from a refugee uh, family um i uh, studied history at uh, UCLA here in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, I'm actually speaking from New Mexico now, as you know, but uh, in Los Angeles, I studied history. Um, And uh, frankly, because the job market was, uh, was excruciatingly tough. uh, At that time, I finished uh, my dissertation in 1978. Um, I looked around for something that would allow me to have one foot in academia and one foot in what I was interested in, I guess, as a child of the 60s, so to speak, in social activism and social justice activism. And I was really lucky to end up um, working um, in um, with agencies that provided aid to uh, refugees So for several years, I was the director of uh, the Program for Torture Victims, which is an agency in Los Angeles that provides medical, psychological, and legal services to victims of state-sponsored torture. So these were people whose cases were being adjudicated in the federal system here, the court system, and they applied for political asylum. Uh, and there was fascinating work, and I saw it in a way as a continuity of kind of my personal history as the child of refugees. Um, when I moved to um, New Mexico, um, I was the director of refugee resettlement for Catholic Charities, which was the agency at the at the time had contracts with the U.S. State Department. To resettle refugees in New Mexico. Um, on the other hand, uh, I was also uh, able to serve as an adjunct instructor in Jewish studies at the University of New Mexico, which really didn't have anybody uh, in the state um, who could who had an academic background in in Jewish studies. And my background is not only in Jewish studies; actually, my primary field was early modern Europe. You know, seventeenth, especially seventeenth century. I wrote my dissertation on political thought, looking at um, Thomas Hobbes, uh, Spinoza, the German political theorist Pufendorf, and the Italian Vico. But um, and then another field, of course, was was Jewish studies as well. So I've always been interested in history, and I've always been interested in somehow linking uh, my academic interests to my activism, and that activism was uh, was able I was able to um, manifest that through my professional work with uh, agencies that worked with uh, refugees so that's a, a a brief background and I think I, i've I've said to younger friends that i'm I'm a um, a proof that you could have an interesting, perhaps more interesting life with a PhD outside of the academic uh, uh, halls, uh, the academic institutions. And I think I've had a very rich and interesting life. So we're Uh, going to talk about an account
0: that you translated and published on Eli Guminar, a Jewish uh, relief worker working in what I suppose we call modern day Ukraine. So where did this go? come from? How did you come across this account? And why did you decide to translate it and publish it? Mm
1: -hmm. My, my parents um, uh, lost most of their relatives uh, in uh, the Holocaust during World War Two. And one of the um, uh, relatives that was lost was my mother's older brother, whose name was Ellie or Ilya, Guminer. So, this, my author is, though born in 1886, an uncle. Uh, and I, you know, there's a kind of tacit contract, I guess, sometimes between survivors and their children. You don't want to trigger pain in your parents. So, you don't ask much about their past. And, you know, most kids don't ask much about their parents' life anyway. And, and then I saw, I knew that this was a painful subject for my mother. Um, uh, uh, my middle name, which is Ellie, Eli, in, I guess in English, but Ellie in Hebrew and Yiddish, uh, I was named after, that was named after this Ellie Gumner, whom she had lost during the war. Uh, but I didn't ask much more about that. I knew that he had been that trained as a lawyer, and I knew that he had perished during the Holocaust with his wife and his teenage daughter. And I also knew that a son had survived named Pinchas and that he was in Moscow and was a scientist in Moscow. And periodically, my mother would have communication with him. That's all I knew. Um, When my parents passed away, they had a vast Yiddish library. And uh, as I went through that library, I came across a thin volume uh, that I had never noticed before. And when I opened it up, I saw that it that the author was Eli Gumener. Uh, the date was 1921, a book published in Vilnius, Vilna in Yiddish, Vilnia, Vilnius or Vilna. And my mother had never told me about this book. She had never told me that he uh, had written a book. And I I simply put the book aside because I was in the middle of my professional life. I was raising a number of children with my wife. uh, And uh, I didn't have time to to do a translation, even though I was doing academic work. uh, But this was not something that I thought of doing. About five years ago, and I guess this has to do partially with age, uh, I thought, you know, I should translate this book. If anything, it'll be a legacy, a family legacy for my children. And as I started to read the book, I realized that uh, it uh, that the book addresses a topic that uh, there was not a lot of academic work, namely relief or aid work during the Russian Civil War, and specifically during the pogrom period uh, in uh, in in World War One. 1914-19, the pogrom period probably ends in the, of the early 1920s, early 1920, rather. And so I, then I kind of put on my historian's hat and started to look at this book uh, as a uh, as a historical text that would uncover one man's experience in the trenches, so to speak, in the killing fields, of Ukraine and specifically one area of Ukraine, a southwest province or gubernia, as they were called then, of Tsarist Russia, uh, called Podolia. And so I started to uh, translate the book and to also do a, a lot of research uh, because it wasn't as an early modernist. I, you know, I didn't really uh, had not um I didn't know a lot, really, frankly, about uh, of the, the, this period, the Russian Civil War, and so forth. So that's how I got to it. Um, and that's how I got to the book. Um, and it's um, the period of COVID, actually, in, in a sense, helped focus me because, you know, as all of us, uh, we couldn't do a lot of activities, and also the internet—the fact that you can go, you can find archival material, and talk to scholars, uh, introduce yourself, and ask for help, and so on and so forth—was uh, was 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 critical uh, to, to writing this book. Um, so that's how, why I decided to, uh, to 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 translate it and, and to have it published. And Slavica Publishers, which is a, a press. Uh, in Indiana University, uh, not the same as Indiana University Press, but it's a specialized press that deals with Eastern Europe, um, uh, agreed to to publish it, and it was published in October uh, of 2022. So let's uh, start with Eli's, Eli's early life. Can you tell us about
0: um, his sort of background when he was born and up until uh, he commences his uh,
1: memoir? Sure. So, uh, Guminer, uh, Eli Guminer was born in 1886 in a small town near Vilnius, near Vilna. I'll use them interchangeably. And he studied for the law in St. Petersburg. He graduated from law school, but was unable to practice law because of czarist uh, anti-Semitic uh, edicts against uh, Jews practicing law and so he turned to what we would call now in modern parlance Jewish communal work in in Vilna, uh, especially um, working with uh, Jewish orphans and uh, and Jewish refugees um, then in he, he interestingly enough, politically he was a Jewish socialist. So he identified with non-Bolshevik or non-communist socialist parties. Um, And uh, he was active in in these parties as well. Now, when we say parties at that period, it's not like parties, political parties, uh, as we know them in the United States and, and and in Great Britain political parties in the uh, early 20th century were uh, inclusive of many, many activities. They sponsored youth clubs, they sponsored sports clubs, they had theater groups, they had uh, uh, unions, Uh, they had a whole array of activities for their, their members. Um, And so uh, they vied for loyalty uh, and, and funds because they could provide these activities and these services to their members. And all Jewish parties had that. So whether they were Zionist political parties or socialist political parties of every stripe, uh they they were these uh inclusive all inclusive parties and he was a member of one of these socialist um uh, parties um in 19 probably 1914 the only evidence i have comes from 1915 he was sent to uh ukraine um in the context of the of world war 1 to deal with uh, Jewish refugees. Now, one has to remember that this was before the age of NGOs and refugee resettlement agencies and aid aid agencies that we are so familiar with now. Um, and it was in 1914 that aid agencies really developed. Of course, we had the Red Cross. Red Cross is a 19th century uh, organization. But in terms of Jewish history, um, there, there was really nothing formal until 1914. And in 1914, a organization was established called ekopo ekopo which is the Jewish committee for aid to war victims and that was the kind of large uh, aid group uh uh which which encompassed other uh smaller aid organizations that worked uh in 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 eastern europe at the same time same year in the united states uh, an agency was created called the American Joint Distribution Committee, sometimes known as the Joint or uh, JDC, uh, that also, whose focus was also uh, aid, relief work to Jews in Eastern Europe and in Palestine as well. So he worked for both agencies and others. He also was a representative of the Russian Red Cross, So as a representative of the Russian Red Cross and these other agencies, he had a twofold task. One was as an investigator, a recorder of the events, but the other was to provide aid to uh, Jewish uh, uh, refugees, displaced persons, and so forth. And so that's how he ended up in Ukraine. And uh the area that he <coughs> specifically worked in as I mentioned before was a a, a a area called Podolia which is in the southwestern part of 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 of, of Ukraine. Um he uh, worked there from about 1914-1915 until the the Red Army pacified the area, we'll we'll talk about that. I'm sure uh, during the course of the conversation. And then he left uh, Ukraine, never to return. Uh, went back to Vilna, and in 1925, moved with his family to um, a city called Novogrudok. Which is near Minsk in present-day Belarus, and in this mid-sized city with a large Jewish population, he continued his kind of communal work. He served as a as a city councilman. He was the it was he could practice law by then. Uh, he was the president of the Jewish orphanage in Novokurudok. Uh and and he continued to work for the American Joint Distribution Committee as their representative in the Bialystok area, a large area, uh, working specifically with Jewish orphans and the impact on Jewish kids uh during uh, World War One. And uh in um 19 um uh, the, the, uh, the World War Two broke out in 1939. As we know, there was a partition of of Poland be, the between German Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, the so called uh, Malta Rippentrop Pact, and he ended up in Soviet Belarus uh, until the uh, until Nazi Germany turned around and attacked its ally, the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, the German forces entered his town, Novogrudok, in, uh, in, in uh, I think it was June 1941, and he and his wife and his um, teenage daughter were executed, were shot at, at that point. In fact, most of the Novogrudok Jewish community was deported, was ghettoized first, and then uh, de- either shot or deported to concentrate, to death camps. Um, a little interesting and very moving side note is this. I mentioned before that he had another, uh, he had a son named Pinchas, who my mother uh, communicated with. When I was writing the book, I, was, I became very interested in the family background. We needed to know more. I wanted to know what happened to Pinchas so I uh, tried as hard as I could, I could not find anything about him. So I submitted, uh, so what I wrote in the book was, uh, and, and Ellie had a son, Pinchas, who survived the Holocaust in, in the Soviet Union. That's all I could write, that's all I knew. Uh, and I submitted the manuscript to Slavica Publishers in October of last year. A month later, November 2022, I get an email written in Russian, which I don't read, and Google Translate, which is pretty good for Russian and some other languages, saying, Dear uh, Michael, I am the son of Pinchas Gumner, the grandson of my author, my uncle, Eli Gumner. How did he find me? Uh, Of course, I knew nothing of his existence. He found me because he was doing genealogical research in Moscow, where he lives. And he came across my name uh, on one of the genealogical sites and and, uh, wrote to me. It was very moving because it was just a month after I had submitted the manuscript. He didn't know that his grandfather had published a uh, memoir in 1921. I didn't know the fate of Pinchas, uh, and so we were able to kind of fill in uh, the the, uh, the the story. And my publishers allowed me just to add a few lines, saying that you know I to kind of say, saying what happened. I mean, what what happened is that he was a university student in Kovno. Lithuania, and then he, uh, when the Germans invaded, he just he simply moved so far east into the Soviet Union. The German army never reached that point, and he remained in the Soviet Union and survived. So it was a, a, an a interesting coda, so to speak, to uh, to this research and to the to the work and to f- family history as well.
0: I know it, uh, it. Thank God for the internet has made all that research so. Um much easier in many ways and these these coincidences are absolutely fascinating let's look at Goumener's account can you tell us about the time period it covers and tell us actually what it covers and, and his experiences as an aid worker during during the Russian Civil War I suppose the tail end of the First World War
1: yeah so the the memoir itself begins in January uh through March 1919 although it's um it doesn't stick to a, a strict chronology. And he sometimes goes backwards to give us uh, context. Uh, and, and to understand the memoir, which is a short book, uh, it, it, uh, oh, it's about 120 pages in Yiddish. Uh, he, to understand the context, uh, one has to uh, really go back to the Russian revolution. Uh, so the Russian Revolution, as we all know, was in March 1917, and the Bolshevik Revolution was in October 1917. When the when the uh, when when the revolution occurred, Ukrainian nationalists. Now Ukraine was part of the Tsarist Russia. But, you, but there was a, a strong Ukrainian nationalist movement that had uh, been, uh, that existed for decades before. Uh, the Ukrainian nationalists at first believed that and wanted to be part of the kind of a greater Soviet federation. So they would get autonomy, a kind of sovereignty, but they would be a federal, they would be part of the, of the emerging Soviet Union. When the after the Bolshevik coup, however, the nationalists decided that they didn't want to go in that direction, and um, and Ukraine, the Ukrainian Parliament declared its independence in January 1918, and at that point, the Red Army invaded Ukraine. Now, invaded Ukraine for a number of reasons. The Russian Civil War really is like a Russian doll, one of those dolls in which when you open it up, there are, you know, more and more. There are wars within wars. So I should say civil wars within civil wars in the overall context of the Russian uh, Civil War. So they entered Ukraine, the Red Army entered Ukraine to do two things, and later it'll be three or four things. But one was to crush the uh, the, uh, Ukra- the Ukrainian nationalist movement. Uh, and, and the other, probably even more important for the Soviets, at least for the Bolsheviks, was to fight the white army. That is the army that was made up uh, of uh, Russian officers who wanted to undo... The Bolshevik Revolution, and either to bring back the monarchy, or not all of them were monarchists, but to uh, establish uh, a, a non-Bolshevik, a non-communist uh, Russia. And uh, they were located, by and large, in south, in south, what was called South Russia, which is really the Crimea. Uh, area uh, and so forth. So you know the south of what we would call now south Ukraine actually. So the Red Army had two armies that it was facing um when it entered Ukraine in 1918. One was the Army of the uh, Ukrainian National Republic or the Ukrainian People's Republic sometimes it's called and also um much further south uh the the White Army as well. However, um the World War 1 was still uh quite uh, in play and the uh German army pushed back the red army. It pushed back the red army and um the red and lenin calculated that to save the revolution it would be better to actually withdraw from World War 1. And so, with the Treaty of uh, Brest-Litov, uh, he makes peace. The this, this Soviet uh, Bolshevik regime makes peace with the um, with with the Germans, which allows the Germans to occupy virtually all of Ukraine. And um, they did this for two reasons. Uh, one was to uh, to as part of a kind of colonization project that Germany had, which, by the way, Hitler would continue, but also to gain the grain and resources for the war effort, for the German war effort, which was floundering in the West, but was still very active in the East. And and when the Germans occupied Ukraine, they set up a kind of a puppet government called the Hetmanite, Hetmanite, uh, which was a, a nationalist, but a right-wing authoritarian government, um, uh, which was at the beck and call of the, of the Germans. Then we know Germany loses the war. And uh, when the Germans were no longer a factor after the end of World War One, the Ukrainian nationalists with peasant militias and so forth uh, deposed the Hetmanate and reconstitute an independent Ukrainian state run by uh, something called the Directory uh, and form an army headed by Simon Petluria. When the uh, when the Ukrainian nationalists reconstitute the the their independent state once again, the Red Army invades Ukraine to. Depose uh, the the the, uh, the 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 state and to again fight the the White Army. So the Red Army invaded in January nineteen nineteen, January March, and this is when the the, the, the memoir uh, uh, begins. What he starts with is um, the Red Army was very successful in Ukraine it was much more disciplined it was much larger uh, Petluria and and the Ukrainian army uh, from the get-go was uh, was saddled with problems um it 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 depended on uh ex Russian soldiers uh it depended on peasants who were uh, who had variable uh, loyalties depending on the particular situation. Uh, It was not a disciplined army and the red army ultimately within a short period of time, really uh, within less than two years, really crushed the Ukrainians and eventually would, would also uh, 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 conquer the white army as well. Um, And it, this period 1918-1919 to the beginning of 1920 was a chaotic almost anarchistic uh period in in Ukraine and uh, people suffered greatly peasants suffered because both the Ukrainian army and the Russian army and the white army would 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 uh would do requisitions would do forced conscriptions sometimes Um, uh, would do collectivization, would try different economic policies and so forth. Peasants were not happy. But the one group that suffered the most, and it suffered the most because it was, this group was the victims of all sides were the Jews. And and the Jews had, uh, were a fairly large minority in 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 Ukraine and uh, and in Podolia so for example in Podolia there were uh, 3 million people and 12% of the population was Jewish what were these Jews uh, uh, in terms of the kind of sociological profile well it was a poor podolia was a poor uh underdeveloped corner of Ukraine um most of the Jews were artisans or merchants or owned taverns they were kind of in the middle middlemen between the you know large polish uh landlords and and the poor ukrainian peasants but as middlemen they were vulnerable vulnerable and uh their vulnerability Came from a number of sides. Uh, you you both—they were sometimes accused of, of, or often accused of being sympathetic to the Bolsheviks. And the reason that they were accused of being sympathetic to the Bolsheviks is that Jewish Bolsheviks were actually highly visible. It's true. Uh, so, for example, Trotsky, uh, though not a practicing Jew, uh, probably not an identifying Jew even, did come from a Jewish family. Marx himself came from a Jewish family. And so uh, Jews were kind of visible in in that sense. Um, it's also true that Jews who themselves were unemancipated in Eastern Europe were attracted to revolutionary groups both communists and non-communists. So Goumen himself was a socialist. Uh, And so they, again, there was a kind of a visibility and an an association of Jews with the left, especially with communism and socialism. On the other hand, they were also considered to be exploitative capitalists, (laughs) Bolsheviks and capitalists. And and that's because uh, of their kind of economic positions in position in, uh, in in Ukraine and in other parts of eastern europe so they were considered to be exploiters uh they were considered to be um uh, uh, of course they were involved for um, throughout the middle ages in 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 usury and they were not the only ones christians were also involved in usury but they were and they were also identified with big land because uh, especially for the Ukrainians, the hated Polish landowners, because in fact, um, between the, the landowners and the peasants, the most literate group and who had the skills were Jews. And so oftentimes they were identified with the hated landowners uh, and again uh, became uh, targets for disgruntled uh, peasants and uh, uh and and and, and elites. Um, so uh, that resulted oftentimes in um, in attacks on jewish communities during the 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 russian civil war in ukraine it's estimated that there were between 1200 and 1500 separate pogroms and and as you know pogroms are uh, attacks on jewish civilians and and uh, and communities um, between twelve hundred and fifteen hundred and uh pogroms between the years 1917 and 1920 which is the period of the of the uh, of the memoir itself uh, 80% of them were in the three administrative re- re- regions of podolia uh, Volhynia and Kiev, and all the warring sides committed pogroms. the The forces of the Ukrainian Directory, approximately forty percent of the pogroms were perpetrated by them. Insurgent insurgents, peasant insurgents, and anarchistic uh, peasant bands, uh, uh, warlords accounted for about twenty five percent of the. Uh, pogroms. The white army uh, accounted for about 17%. The red army accounted for about 9%. A particular popular and powerful peasant, uh, a leader named Grigoriev, who had a very large uh, peasant uh, army, accounted alone for 4%. And the Polish army accounted for 3%. So you could see that the Jews were stuck Between all the warring factions, all the warring factions. And pogroms could be, they don't always end up with deaths. They could be pillage, uh, looting, rapes, uh, displacements, and of course, murder. Uh, and uh, th- this was th- what gumner faced in, in 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 this period. So he uh, begins with the pogroms in uh, in the in the uh, uh, spring of 1919. Uh, the worst period, the pogrom period, was the summer of 1919, and he talks about that. Uh, he uh, he um, talks about the challenges of providing aid uh during this period and he also talks about the political discord between jewish uh organizations and political parties in uh in ukraine in podolia specifically which he claims was um mitigated the effect of, which he claims d- d- had an, a negative impact on the ability to provide aid to Jewish communities. So in other words, when the Zionist political parties fought with the non Zionist socialist parties or the religious Jewish parties fought with, with the, with the non religious socialist parties and they did fight for control mainly and for control of funds, he said that this had a tremendous negative impact on the ability of Jewish aid organizations to provide aid. Now, my reading of the situation is nothing could have stopped the pogroms short of some sort of intervention from the outside. Uh, but still, he does write about that, and it's not a, a, a pretty thing to read about, you know, kind of Jewish party discord in the midst of catastrophe. Uh, whether they were socialists, communists, Zionists, religious men, women, children, they were all victims in the final analysis. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, um, interesting topic. Uh, Finally, he ends the the, um, memoir when he talks uh, with the pacification of Ukraine by the Red Army. He he sticks around a bit uh, and tries to work uh, under the Soviets, but the Sovietization of Ukrainian society began right away and it affected aid work because what the um, uh, Soviets did is they, they did not allow non-communists to work in aid work and slowly elbowed out. Even those, those people like Gumler had tremendous experience in aid work, they elbowed them out. And even persecuted them, and he saw the handwriting on the wall with the Sovietization of Ukraine, and that's when he left late 1920, perhaps early 1921, and uh, uh, left Ukraine forever. And do we know why he wrote his memoir? Uh, yes, uh, and in fact, if you uh, even allow me to read a, a bit uh, from from the memoir, uh, it 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 explains. You know, I use the term that Guminer had what I would call a historiographic imperative to record the catastrophe that he saw around him. Uh, unfortunately, much of Jewish history but certainly not all of Jewish history, was one in which Jews were um, victims of of catastrophe. And there is a whole literature of destruction that starts in antiquity, the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem, the second temple in Jerusalem, and goes through the Middle Ages with the with the tragedy of the crusades and the impact of the crusades on jewish life uh, uh, uh later on of course the the holocaust so there is a kind of genre a topos of, uh, of uh, a genre of of the literature of destruction and i think that the the for him the imperative and for others was to record what was happening even if they could not Eber Levin oh, uh, uh, meaning survive the themselves the, the catastrophe at least they would leave a record for the future mm-hmm. so he writes uh, actually a um, he talks about um, the the a meeting that he participated in in Kiev in July 1920 in which a group of Jewish activists, decided that they were going to try to record and document the pogroms uh, as, as best they could. So here, here, here's what he writes. Um, amid such a hell, it was no wonder that the Jewish population in the Ukraine in summer 1919 was in a terrible state of mind. Pogroms, pogroms, and pogroms without end. And there did not seem to be any hope that the situation would get better. A small number of Jewish intellectuals were able to smuggle themselves to Russia. We gradually became convinced that nobody would come to help us. On one side stood the Ukrainian army, which under the fog of war perpetrated pogroms. Insurgents, he means here peasant bands, also terrorized and perpetuated violence against the Jewish population. On the other side stood the powerless Soviets. Anarchy swept across the land. Larger cities were poorly defended and small towns were entirely abandoned. We were unable to organize aid for the pogrom victims. The Jewish population was imbued with a pogrom fear. Our anxiety and exhaustion were at a peak. Feelings of helplessness took hold not only of the everyday Jews, but also of experienced political and communal activists. I happened at that time to attend a conference of prominent Jewish activists in Kiev. We tried to agree on the question of collecting pogrom evidence and also to consider the question of guilt. Our mood during these deliberations was very gloomy. We do not even know, said one delegate, whether we will survive this year. Let us print the material about the pogroms so that at least something will be passed to the oncoming, to the coming generations. So this results in uh, uh, in something called um, the editorial board for gathering and researching materials regarding the pogroms in Ukraine. And indeed this committee uh, uh, which would l- later w- would change its name to the Historical Archive of Eastern Jewry, uh, became the treasure trove of of, of documents, uh, eyewitness documents from all these investigators who worked for the Russian Red Cross and the, and and, uh, and and the Joint Distribution Committee and ECOPO, this. Russian Jewish Relief Group became the basis for a, a vast archive, which was taken to Germany. That's how it survived, uh, and um, and 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 parts of it were published. Uh, m- much of that archive is now found in New York in a um, in a, uh, a, 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 a a research institute called YIVO the Jewish Research Institute, which is indispensable for any work on Eastern European Jewish history in the modern period. So that was the historical imperative that he shared with other Jewish elites or activists. Um, some Muslim not trained historians, uh, they were lawyers, they were teachers, they were professionals, but not trained historians uh and and that was i think his impetus to to write the, the this memoir and is there anything that stands out
0: particularly for you uh, about the, the account
1: ah uh, yeah uh, very much so and this might be of, of interest also to your you know regular lit- listeners the memoir is not an account of war from the standpoint of diplomacy or high politics not and it's not military history It's a testimonial from an outsider whose mission was to protect and aid a particularly vulnerable community trapped in the killing fields. Particularly vulnerable because, as I explained before, all the warring sides found the excuse or the rationale to attack Jews. Uh, So I think that that's kind of one of the things that stands out. And that's why I call it in the introduction a micro-history. One man's account, two years in a particular region. But Gumner's memoir also, I think, is a reminder, and this is, I think, has contemporary implications, for how difficult it is to provide aid to civilians in the fog of war. The obstacles were huge. The ebb and flow of the front. I mean, we think of the Western Front. It a lot of static Lines there and move back and forth. In the Russian Civil War, by contrast, there was uh, 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 the F would be occupied by uh, the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, army, and then a week later, it would be occupied by the Red Army, and a month later it might be again occupied by the same Ukrainian forces, or it might be occupied by the Poles or the whites. So forth, the front moved week to week, month to month. and 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 it was you can understand, doesn't need a huge act of the imagination to see how difficult it would be to uh, to 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 bring aid uh, significant aid to to these places. The security risks were immense. Two well-known American aid workers were killed by Russian troops. Who fought that they were Polish troops, and as I mentioned, there were many wars. So one of the wars not only the Red Army versus the Ukrainian national Republic, but the Red Army versus the Polish Army because the Poles claimed parts of Ukraine as you know Polish territory. Uh, and uh, and these two Americans, very well known one was a rabbi uh these were aid workers um were were killed um, uh, during uh in Padolia actually uh, in, uh, shortly after Gumner had met with them uh, so the the security risks were e- immense, dealing with health issues, tending to the wounded, preventing the spread of typhus, establishing soup kitchens, distributing blankets. Underwear. He talks a lot about distributing underwear. And I thought to myself, that's odd. You know, I mean, I was in, in, in refugee resettlement work, uh, underwear. But when you think about it, if you don't have underclothing week after week, uh, you know, that's a very uncomfortable situation and a very uh, uh, unhealthy situation as well. Shoes, underclothing, Soup kitchens, managing orphans, displaced persons. the The book gives us a little bit of 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 uh, of a of a glimpse of the difficulty to uh, provide aid. Um, so I mean, those are the three things that stand out that that it's it's not the kind of war account that we're used to. Uh, it 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 gives us an insight into the difficulty of providing aid. And also, unlike the war on the Western Front in World War One, uh, the incredible fluidity of things was astonishing. Yeah. One thing
0: I, I was wondering: did he does he mention the impact of the Spanish flu on the local
1: populations in mm. Ukraine? He does not. And I actually made a mistake in the book. I have to admit, I uh, and I should have known. Uh, I used the word typhoid. That he that he fought for ty, typhoid but actually there's a difference between typhoid and typhus so no he doesn't talk about the Spanish flu I don't think it reached uh that far into Eastern Europe but typhus was was a was a problem indeed you know you, one of the things that I think um we should talk about are with the implications of guminer's account that what are the lesson me. lesson lesson learned so to speak and I, here's what I, I mean this is one historian's and one, one kind of social activist uh, 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 opinion in, in a sense. And I think it's, you know, for those of us who are interested in history, maybe uh, these, these are, I hope, uh, interesting questions. But you know, the lesson learned are really what if questions. What if the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a relatively stable entity between the 16th and the 18th century had not been partitioned by the Habsburgs, the Prussians, and Tsarist Russia in 1772, 1793, and 1795. What if Polish and Ukrainian nationalists had made common cause against Tsarist Russia before World War I, and then again against the Soviet Union during World War II, rather than fighting one another during both those wars? What if the minority rights treaties had been respected by Poland, Austria, Romania, and others who signed the treaties at the Paris Peace Conference? What if the Zionist movement had been stronger and the British and British mandate Palestine had been open to Jewish refugees during World War I? Not to speak of the 1930s and the Jewish refugees then. And what if the United States Congress had not passed restrictive immigration laws in 1921, 1924, and 1927? Finally, I think the account raises another question still discussed by human rights activists and policymakers, namely the so-called responsibility to intervene. Do we have a responsibility to intervene when we in the free world witness and have clear evidence of mass killings and genocidal uh, uh, events around the world. Do we have a moral uh, 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 imperative to intervene? And what would that look like? What does it mean? It's something that we don't have an answer. I said before, I don't think that the programs could have been halted even by any outside intervention. I mean, in the final analysis, one side had to win. And it was the Soviet Union. The Red Army finally pacified that that region. Uh, Although 20 years later, the German army came in and kind of finished, in terms of Jewish history, kind of Eastern European Jewish history, kind of finished what what had begun really in in, in, in the Russian Civil War. Uh, So... those I think are some of the the what ifs really are the interesting questions to me. They're academic questions, but they uh, they I think that they're that, you know that they're, they're powerful and, and interesting. Um, so you know that that's I think some of the kind of lesson learned really. I, I'm I'm the kind of historian who believes that history does not repeat itself with any specificity, uh, so we must you know study each. Event in its own right and its own context and so on and so forth. Those those conditions will never be the same. Uh, Fifty years uh, later than uh, you know, the, or hundred years later, or even five years later. Uh, so that's you know, kind of my my kind of lesson lesson learn um, uh, answer to to you know, to, to this uh, to this memoir and why I wrote it. Um, if people want to learn more, of course, the, the book is um, is is available through Slavica Publishers and I think I think Amazon as well. Uh, again, it's called A Ukrainian Chapter and A, a Jewish Aid Workers Memoir of Sorrow, Podolia 1918, 1920. Um, a new book came out by Metropolitan Books 2021 by an American um, uh, historian who teaches at the University of Michigan. His name is Jeffrey Weidlinger. uh, And his book is called In the Midst of Civilization, The Pogroms of 1918 through 1921 and the Onset of the Holocaust. Uh, Two more recommended books. Uh, One of them is by... um, Jacqueline Granick, who is a lecturer in history at Cardiff University. And she just published a book, Cambridge University 2021, called International Jewish Humanitarianism in the Age of the Great War. And finally, uh, again, a book that I think is brilliant uh, is by a historian named Carol Fink, um, Cambridge. 2004, and it's called Defending the Rights of Others, the Great Powers, the Jews and International Minority Protections, 1878 through 1938. So those are the four books that I would recommend for people who are interested uh, in, in the topic.
0: Michael, thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure.